Hi, welcome to Transition Talk on site, episode 4. A podcast by Accenture where it's all about our energy needs in the future. My name is Harmen van der Veen. My name is Lonneke Tabak. I'm the Energy Transition Services Lead for Accenture the Netherlands. And this is the second season of Transition Talk. But this time we go outdoors, Lonneke, and we talk about energy transition on site. To take a look in the future with our own eyes. We aren't even in the Netherlands right now. Where are we? Yeah, we went abroad this time. So we are in Brussels, not that far away from the Netherlands. And we are at a conference. So we are at a Power Summit. That is a yearly conference hosted by Euroelectric. And um, there are many representatives from the European utilities industries here. So there are representatives from DSOs, TSOs, retailers, but also politicians. So a very interesting broad group of stakeholders who all have a role in the energy transition. And where do they talk about? Well, they, this year the theme was balance of power. Mm-hmm. Um, so that theme is both about political developments, but also on how we should collaborate in order to achieve our decarbonization targets. There you are. Okay, it's it's about decarbonization. Yes, the energy transition is decar- about decarbonizing our energy needs for the future. And Lonneke, you spoke as well. Yes, I did. I spoke yesterday. Yeah, it was really nice. It was really good to do. So we, last year, um, maybe to take a step back, I'm sorry, Accenture is the knowledge partner of Your Electric. Ah. And Your Electric did a flagship study this year called Decarbonization Speedways. So they already did a decarbonization pathway study four years ago, but there were many developments that asked for a fresh new look on possible speedways to decarbonize the European energy sector. So geopolitical and technological developments. So for instance, we learned a lot about possibilities for direct electrification in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. The position of natural gas and our dependency on natural gas changed in the last couple of years. And uh, we learned more, for instance, about applications for hydrogen. So this will require a new look on speedways to decarbonize the European energy sector. The world is changing fast and a lot. And you spoke. Yeah, it went really well. I was really happy with it. And Were you nervous? Yes, of course. Yeah, I am comfortable speaking, but this was really, of course, a big audience and a very important stakeholder group. So yes, I, I think I saw it over there. Um, your face is on this big screen, like double, isn't it? Yes. So you're presenting, and your presentation is behind you, but also your face is on two adjacent screens as well. So uh, yeah, so two ginormous lonicus and one little in the middle. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Who are we meeting? So we are meeting with Michelangelo Aveta. Um, nice name. Yeah, very beautiful name. Is he from Italy? He is Italian, yeah, what gave it away? Yeah. <laughs> um, so he was the project lead for the decarbonization study on the Euroelectric side. So we worked together a lot for the, for the past year. Where do we meet him? We're meeting him here in the conference hall and then uh, we'll go inside our office because our Accenture office happened to be in the same building as the conference, uh, the conference hall. Hey, Michelangelo. Ah, good, how are you? He's calling. Yeah, I can imagine. It was an intense two days, of course. Are you uh, are you coming our way for the podcast recording? Okay, perfect. We'll meet you in front of the Accenture office, yes? All right, see you in a bit. And there he is, Michelangelo. Nice to meet you, Michelangelo. My name is Harman. Hey, Harman. Nice to meet you, Michelangelo. Thanks for coming. Uh, we go upstairs. Uh, we have a little podcast studio built up for you. Fantastic. Can't wait to see it. Let's get started. Yes, let's get started. 
So here we are at the table, three mics for our noses. Um, Michelangelo, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, with pleasure. Uh, Michelangelo Veta, I'm part of the Aeroelectric team. Um, I've been working together with Accenture in this last month, uh, seems even more than months, of course, uh, for this decarbonization speedways. Very happy to be part of this endeavor. And we launched it just yesterday at our power summit. How That's did a it go? fantastic thing. The launch. Well, the launch went well, I would say. Um, the only problem we had at some point is that our website, actually all our websites were attacked by a malware. And that's why everything went, yeah, just offline. Oh, uh, not because of the success everybody was visiting the site? No, uh, no, that's not the point. I think, however, there is sort of like a badge of honor because uh, this was an attack. Like we, we were able to trace that it was a malware attack. Whoa. So apparently we are annoying to some. And, you know, that's a, that's a good sign. But who are we annoying? No one at all. Too too many people. It depends if it's on a personal or a professional level. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good to be here, uh, the, Lonneke. The both of you, you know each other. You work together, isn't it? Yeah, we work together indeed for the last couple of months. I think a year, even. So uh, I was the project lead for the decarbonization speedways on the Accenture side, and Michelangelo was the project lead for the study on the Euroelectric side. Mm -hmm. And what did you produce together? Can you tell something about it? Yeah, with much, much pleasure. The, the whole idea behind was to basically map the possibilities and different paths for decarbonization of uh, the three, let's say, most emitting sectors in Europe, transport, buildings and industry, and at the same time map the decarbonization potential of the electricity sector or power sector. And this was done checking these possibilities and results in 2030. 40 and 50. So all the way down to 2050 and our commitments or rules pointing at full decarbonization of the continent in 2050. And why is it called Speedway? Well, first, because we need a lot of speed, because yeah. we got a lot to do and we need to do it fast. But second, as a sort of an internal rationale, that in 2018, uh, Aeroelectric published another study called uh, decarbonization pathways, the time has passed and the need for speed is there yeah. and that's why speedways. A pathway is like a walk in the, walk in the park, a speedway is uh, hurry up a little bit. Exactly, there's no, no walk in the park right now. No, no <laughs> walking in the park right now, which is quite green to walk in the park. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> that's correct. Um, Michelangelo, what's, what, what's in the study? Can you tell us about it? Well, as I was saying, uh, we were trying as much as possible to stay both ambitious and realistic when it comes to the potential of this, in a nutshell, four sectors. As I was saying, transport, building industry and power. Of course, these are influencing each other. One provides the demand for the last one, the power sector, to provide, of course, the supply. So you need to satisfy some ambitions that exist on the, on the demand side. And this, of course, implies 
uh, understanding what are the trends for the industry, understanding what are the possibilities from an economic perspective, the different uh, CAPEX, OPEX, any sort of acronyms that might make you cry that are going to be that are going to be around around there. And as I was saying, it's a very complex exercise of putting together the realism because you don't just want to say, hey, guys, tomorrow morning we decarbonize, we're all happy about it. But then you don't want to be also somehow lackluster when it comes to ambitions. Why? Uh, regulations ask us to be ambitious. The world simply asks us to be ambitious. So I guess uh, we rose to the challenge and I think we did a good job in detailing these uh, speedways or paths. And Lonneke, did you succeed in keep the balance right between being realistic and ambitious? Yeah, so maybe to start with the objective of the scenarios. A scenario is not a prediction of the future. It's a way to see how can we achieve our targets? What are the possibilities? So what we see, emissions have already been steadily declining since 1990, but slowly. If we want to reach our decarbonization targets, you need to realize a breaking point from the trend of the past. So you need to significantly ramp up your efforts to decarbonize and you need to do something different because what we did so far is not enough to reach our decarbonization targets. Well, maybe you need a crisis or something or something electroshock or not. I mean, if you want to decline, you want to make a drop. Yes, you need a breaking point from the past trend. So you need to start doing something different than what you did in the past. I think perhaps one interesting element is that major part of the debate in uh, in Europe and of course here in Brussels even more is that we focus most of the time on on targets. Namely, we focus on where we want to be, of course, where we need to be, but it's mostly on the destination. Mm-hmm. With the uh, with the study, uh, we wanted to also somehow point to the enabling conditions, all the different steps that we need to walk as a society and of course as a power sector to reach those targets. In a way, whether you set your target for carbon neutrality in 20, 35, 40 and 50, the nature of the challenge is not that different. Perhaps the speed and the magnitude of the challenge changes, Mm -hmm. but the nature itself does not, uh, meaning renewable and decarbonized generation in terms of capacity and in terms of output needs to increase. Your distribution lines and your transmission lines need to become better, stronger and smarter. Citizens need to see the results of that transition in terms of their energy bills overall going down and those investments that you need to finance and power, sorry for the pun, all of that need to be supported with the right investment frameworks. Let's not forget one thing, and then I'll give you the floor, Lonek. I have this horrible problem that I start talking and never stop. Um, We're talking about an industry Mm -hmm. changing itself, coming from, let's say, an idea where firm generation was all uh, grouped in very big and centralized generation sites and now a highly decentralized uh, variable generation framework. This is not simply a change in terms of technology. This is in many cases a change in terms of almost psychology of those working. So that's a fantastic challenge, honestly. 
I can imagine. And, and what transformation do we need to decarbonize the power sector, Lonneke? Yeah, so as Michelangelo said, in the end, we need to accelerate on what we already all know that we need to do. We need to start installing more generation capacity of renewables, so solar and wind. In our scenario, solar and onshore, sorry, solar and offshore wind increase nine and tenfold in terms of installed capacity, and onshore wind quadruples. Okay. So that's a that's huge a lot, increase. Yes, yeah, that's huge. between now and 2050. That's huge. So I think we all know that we need to do that as solar and wind will be the, the bulk of our decarbonization efforts. It will be supported by clean gases for to cover for extended periods of time when solar and wind are not available and nuclear, of course, but the bulk of our decarbonization efforts will be solar and wind and we need to invest and install more to build out that capacity. But I also hear there still be there still will be gas. Yes, so we see in our scenarios that it's really difficult to go to 100% wind and solar. Yes, because you will have extended periods of time when solar and wind availability is really limited. So we will still need see a continued need for nuclear and decarbonized gases to cover for those longer periods. When you talk about shorter term fluctuations, batteries can complement the mix. But then you're talking about day, night or days. But if you talk about months, so for instance, in the Northern Hemisphere, we have a lot of solar availability in the summer months, right? In spring and summer. But then in winter, solar availability is low. And a battery typically will not be able to cover these seasonal fluctuations. So in summer, you could produce, for instance, hydrogen with an oversupply of clean electricity and then use that hydrogen in winter. But we're talking about the last bit of electricity generation here. The bulk will be wind and solar and direct electrification. Let me be clear about that. So that's the realistic part you're telling us. Yes, yes. In, in many in many countries, for example, in my country, in Italy, uh, there is a lot of debate related to possible uh, scenarios that point to the 100% uh, renewable sources. Which sounds so good. Which sounds, which sounds amazing, honestly, uh, the problem is that when you look at the uh, enabling conditions for that to exist, you are then relying on massive investments on, on storage and other technologies that are literally able to bridge right between the night and the day, if we want to be, you know, metaphorical or even, let's say, practical. So we need to definitely look at uh, a very clear-cut form of discrimination, if I may. And the discrimination is emissions, CO2 emissions. If your technology emits CO2, you're going to have a very hard time to exist in the future that we are uh, depicting right now. If your technology does not have CO2 emission, then you're good to go all aboard the decarbonization train because that's where we're going. Yeah. So it's not just wind and solar. It's also the, let's say, forgotten blue giant of hydropower. It's also it's also nuclear. As and long any, as there's no emission. As long as there's no emission, everybody is okay. In Brussels, once again, we always talk about technology neutrality as this sort of mantra, as the dogma. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm okay 
to be technology neutral with one single discrimination, which is CO2 emissions. But we need big investment, isn't it? Yes, we what? need to invest more than what we have done so far. Where do we get the money from and who's paying for it? Well, usually when it comes to investments, the money comes from the industry, meaning that um, private private actors are going to be asked and tasked to invest big amounts to make sure that we can reach that generation capacity. Of course, this also implies uh, a cohesive and coherent industrial policy and perhaps even monetary policy. I don't, I don't know, I'm not an expert in the sector, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, an overall uh, economic framework and macroeconomic framework which is conducive to investments in this sector. We're talking about market design rules. We're speaking of uh, anti or pro-inflationary measures mm. or even just a redistribution, a fairer distribution of benefits. And strong government choices like the European Union or the, com the Commission? You advise the Commission, isn't it? Your yes, company. yes, 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 indeed. We are at heart uh, an advocacy. Uh, organization. That's why we are here in Bristol, of course. <laughs> exactly. That's, but is that one that's of correct. the advices that, that, that strong government investment works too? Mm, see, here it becomes a little bit complicated because I wouldn't say that we are asking for government mm -hmm. investments. We are asking for, most of the time, regulatory stability and for a framework that is able to attract the investment. If you set rules today and promise and clarify that rules are going to be the same for the next 10 years, then investments might come in. If you change your rules every two to three years, nobody's going to put a dime, let's be honest. And maybe two remarks to add on this. So what's important to keep in mind? Yes, we need to invest way more. In our scenario, we see the investments in installed generation capacity will more or less double compared to business as usual. And that's a lot. But we must keep in mind as well that renewables are characterized by a different investment structure than uh, fossil fuel-fired power plants. So with renewables, you have very high upfront capex investments, but then the OPEX, so once you've installed the renewables, the OPEX is really low. So running your power plant is way less costly than running a coal-fired power plant. So yes, we need to invest more, but the OPEX will be a lot lower. Uh, for sure. Let's not forget the money that we spend every year on fossil fuel imports and all the money which is unfortunately wasted to address the issues caused by uh, pollution in our in our cities we're talking about uh, health expenses we're talking about subsidies that unfortunately still exist for fossil fuels we're asking to divert okay this money into things that are able to protect our economy and societies for the years to come it sounds like a complex system as well because right now we got stable stable power systems with the fossil plants isn't it yeah this is basically what the power system used to be uh already steady trustable well, yes but there are there are already there are already many Natural countries gas. 
Yeah, that's also a very good point, Lonneke. But also, be before we jump into the madness of war that we're living, uh, there are already many countries in the north of Europe that power themselves at some more than 90% of their power needs thanks to, thanks to renewables. Right. And they are not going through massive blackouts. They're not going through massive discomfort. Well, of course, it's night for some six months a year, but that's another problem. Mm -hmm. That's just like how the, the planet works, not how the power system works. Yeah, so it is definitely possible. That's also, we see that in our study, you can have a renewable energy system, but we need to, to speed up and do things different to reach that goal. So we need an evolution Mm -hmm. What's the main driver then for decarbonization? So, uh, my answer might be a little bit biased because of uh, who I represent, namely Electric, which is the Electricity Industry Association, representing some 3,500 companies active in generation, distribution and retail of electricity around Europe. For us, and I believe even from a sort of logical perspective, uh, decarbonization means electrification, more often than not direct electrification, meaning we want to reduce the CO2 emissions and when you use electricity, you are literally not emitting at the, at the end use level. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, uh, relying on electrification also implies the possibility of generating that electricity via non-polluting sources, those renewables, those carbon-free sources in terms of electricity production. Um, the point is that there are some other solutions that are uh, carbon zero or non-emitting, like hydrogen or various forms of carbon capture, so on and so forth. The problem that we notice is that the costs of these uh, solutions tend to be quite high, mm -hmm. at least according to the technologies that we have nowadays. And now without the benefit of the crystal ball, if we want to do somehow, let's say, a look into the future, we need to rely on somehow better versions of things that we have nowadays, namely technologies to produce uh, zero emission electricity. Yeah, maybe to add a very practical example. So Michelangelo explained Electricity is a very efficient way of using energy, right? So if we take an example of uh, heating your home, many people in the Netherlands have a gas boiler. And if you replace an average gas boiler by an electrical heat pump, your total energy demand for heating goes down by 73%, which is a lot. And that's because electricity is a very efficient way of using energy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this also brings in uh, an entirely new concept, which is, of course, the affordability, so mm -hmm. the consumer perspective. Namely, if you can do a specific job with least amount of, of energies, you simply need to buy less, okay? You need to buy less energy to satisfy your, your need. And if we look at uh, 2040 and then 2050 in our analysis, if we switch uh, polluting fossil fuels to uh, electricity 
uh, for transport, for heating your apartment, so on and so forth, you can save in your energy bill somewhere between 30 and 40 percent in 2040 and 2050. This is a clear benefit. You're not only saving money, but you're also not coughing because of the fumes, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's a pretty sweet deal, I think. And I think this, so we touched upon a couple of points that are interesting, maybe to summarize. Mm -hmm. The core of our analysis is CO2 emission reduction. That's a constraint. We want to look at how we can decarbonize the European energy sector because we want to stop emitting CO2. But a successful energy transition is not only about CO2 emission reduction. It's also about efficiency, reliability and affordability. And this will not happen overnight, of course, requiring all those enabling conditions that I was mentioning just just before. And that's why we are so, so, so focused on those steps, as I was saying before, that we need to walk to reach the destination. What is the importance of flexibility in a system with high shares of variable power sources, Lonneke? Well, having sufficient flexibility is critical. We also discussed this in the last podcast episode when we talked about smart charging, right? Mm -hmm. With uh, Hans de Yeah. Um, so when we move towards a completely decarbonized system with high shares of solar and wind, there is a lot of variability in the production. So you need flexibility on two levels to cover for longer periods where solar and wind availability is limited and for shorter fluctuations, shorter duration fluctuations, for instance, day, night or fluctuations dur during the day. So in, a, in the older power system where we had a lot of uh, fossil fuel fired power plants, you could control very easily when to fire up your power plants. So every day we would have a prediction of the demand and then the supply will be adjusted according to that. But in a new system, you have a, a, a supply that is given. You can predict it to some extent, but it's harder to control. So you need to do something on the demand side, and we call that demand side response. Okay. So changing your demand based on fluctuations on the supply side. For instance, let's say you have an electrical heat pump, you want to heat your home. Maybe you can fluctuate the, um, the temperature a bit or preheat your home to change the moments in time when you consume electricity. That's an example of demand-side response. Another really good example is smart charging, what we discussed last week. Not all at once. Exactly. So not coming home, plugging your car, immediately charge at maximum power, rather spread it throughout the night. And you Be communicate with the, with the electric car. Exactly. Now's the time to charge. Exactly. Now's the time to give a little bit. Back. Exactly. Exactly. And then a second form of flexibility is, of course, storage. So as we discussed in a battery or by converting electricity into gas. And Michelangelo, how do you see the use of hydrogen? Well, I think hydrogen is a great element. Let's be honest, from a chemical perspective, it's a fantastic element. Mm. Uh, it's one of the decarbonized sources that we will use in the future. Nonetheless, um, because it's quite expensive to make and, uh, and limited, it's going to be used for some very specific um, use cases. We're talking about the power sector in those cases where you need to somehow feel your need because of the variability of renewables 
or sectors that are uh, technically defined as hard to abate. Which are? Which are industry, which can be some forms of transport, think of aviation, think of the uh, shipping sector, or some forms of long-haul transportation. Usually the way I put it is like this. Think of, think of champagne, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, well. You don't use it all the times. You save it for those moments that count. And that's exactly what we want to do with hydrogen, which of course needs to be clean. Sort of a premium exactly. kind of project. Yes, okay. precious, limited, fantastic in its use. Better not get drunk with it. Yes, sure. but champagne has a really positive image. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hydrogen doesn't in some way. Yeah, perhaps. So some people are scared with exploding cars and all these stories. I mean, well, yeah. champagne bottles explode too. <laughs> no, it is <laughs> I don't see a correct. problem anymore. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Better be careful for that sure. That is a good one, and good maybe metaphor. I'd like to add on that briefly because I know we're close to the end of the podcast, but... Natural gas also has risks, right? But we just came to accept it and deal with it. For instance, we add an odorizer because otherwise you can smell it if there is a gas leak, etc. And hydrogen also has risks, but they're different. So we just need to cope with the new risks. But let's not forget, natural gas also has risks. They're just different and we learn to deal with it. Back to the study. Michelangelo, how and by who will this study be used? Well, I I think and hope at the same time that the study will be used by the whole power sector uh, community. For sure, Aeroelectric will be using this study when engaging with uh, European policymakers, when engaging with other associations and stakeholders that are active uh, here in Brussels, the capital of, uh, of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, we will also, of course, provide this study to our uh, members, which are the national associations of electricity uh, sectors from the different countries in, uh, in Europe. So we hope that also they will uh, use it in their national communications and properly tailor it to their national needs. And Lonneke, how will Accenture further build upon this study, well, your study? We have a standardized approach for decarbonization studies. And we also made use of a model from our partner, Mao. They have a really, really uh, detailed electricity market model that models every single generation unit in the in the countries that you're looking at. So we leverage this model and this methodology in other decarbonization studies as well. Okay, and where can the listeners access and read the study? It is already on our website, which is uh, finally back online. Uh, so it's on the euroelectric.org website and you can find it there you can find it and read it and get inspired this was transition talk on site a podcast by Accenture my name is Harman my name is Lonneke Tabak my name is Michelangelo Veta and thank you for listening and you can find us on any podcast platform you like and we'll be back soon with interesting topics on interesting locations Maybe in France or maybe in Denmark. I don't know where Lonneke will take me. In the meantime, stay safe and stay sustainable. Well said. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yay. (laughs) Thank you, Michelangelo.